This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Buzzwords. Buzzwords. We're going to talk about a particular buzzword today that's being thrown around all the time. It's a word that's captured in our songs. It's painted on murals. It's depicted in our movies. It's said in our slogans. It's splashed across t-shirts. It's the idea or the buzzword of unity. Unity. Now, I don't know, you know, what sentiments you might have about the buzzword uh, of unity or a buzzword like that, but I believe some of us may have become somewhat jaded towards it in our culture today, uh, maybe especially in the last year, as it's oftentimes associated with a lot of very grandiose ideas that rarely see the light of day. It's oftentimes associated with over-promising and under delivering and slogans like, we're all in this together. And you're wondering, are we? (laughs) Are we all in this together? And yet there's a reason why everyone talks and sings about it. There's a reason why you still love a movie like Remember the Titans or Hoosiers or whatever. (laughs) The reason why is it's a buzzword. It's a buzzword like love, vision, innovative, and so forth. There's a reason why. And it's simply because we want unity. We want unity. There's a goodness and there's an importance to unity in our life. Even with all of the fakes, even with all the counterfeits with unity, or even with the realization that when we achieve unity, even at its heights, it will never last. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. The team season comes to an end. The band breaks up. The unit goes home. It won't last. And so we may have become somewhat jaded towards unity, but we still want it. We still want it, and it's still incredibly important. If you don't believe me, as you think about this tension, just think about the times or the places where you've experienced a lack of unity in your life, you know, where nobody was pulling together in the same direction, or nobody was like-minded enough to work together where you are constantly at odds. Uh, think about this with your, with your home. You know, what is more draining than constantly being at odds with your wife? Nothing. <laughs> What's more draining than being constantly at odds with your husband? What's more draining than being constantly at odds with your teens or teens? What's more draining than being constantly at odds with both parents or one parent, right? It's, it's draining. That kind of conflict just sucks the life out of you. At work, right? When there's a lack of unity, doesn't it make everything that much harder in every situation that much bigger? I remember in one of my early jobs, sensing a, a problem with somebody on staff where we didn't have very good unity. I, I remember being able to just walk through those office doors and just feel this cold shoulder from the corner office, right? When that is happening, when there's that kind of lack of unity, the atmosphere changes. Every decision seems personal. Every answer seems negative. And every process seems cumbersome. 
Unity is important at home. It's important at work. And of course, with the community, it's key. How many problems get solved when everyone's fighting or there's all this backbiting? The answer is very few. And at church, this is no exception. If you've ever had the sad experience of being a part of a church split, you know how important and how painful a lack of unity can be. At the end of the day, jaded or not, unity is important. It's needed. And there is a longing in our hearts for it, for a unity that is deep, that is genuine, and is lasting. We want it. And today I want to show you that unity from the scriptures, allowing God's word to paint for us a mouth-watering picture of unity that even our cynical hearts can't help but wanting, admiring, and hopefully with God's help, pursuing. To do that, I want you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. We're going to take a high-level look through this psalm at two key truths of unity and then how we cultivate it, how we cultivate it. And I want to encourage you to be a note-taker today. Uh, gang, there's a reason why we have all these pens and journals and why we you know, built it into the app for our church and why there's all these slides and stuff. It's because we want you to engage in this time of teaching so that you walk away with it so that you use it. All right? So if you're in the overflow section of the lobby or you're in the front row, all right, Bible's open, pen at the ready, because we're going to dive in and we're going to go far. Psalm 133. Now, in the psalm, which is potentially written by, by King David, uh, this psalm was used by the people of God uh, that they would sing it as they would start out, as they would travel to and arrive at the destination that they were on while on pilgrimage from wherever they lived in ancient Israel to the city of Jerusalem for one of the you know, big festivals, one of the key festivals of Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks. And this is a song that they would oftentimes sing in that context, which if we pitch that scene with all of these people taking a multi-day trip with their relatives and their kids by foot, you know, when you picture that, you might realize that this makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, if you've ever taken a multi-day road trip with your kiddos, with all the potty breaks and the car sickness, followed by the cabin fever, followed by that behind-the-seat spanking maneuver, you know... Um, <laughs> You can imagine why somebody might need to sing about unity while on that journey. And this song, like any good song, it communicates at great depth with very few words. So we're going to unpack this psalm together. Psalm 133, it starts out, Behold, that means pay attention, right? Behold how good and pleasant it is when, right? So as in a particular time, not all the time, but a particular time in real time, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, that's a reference to the people of God, dwell in unity, it is like, all right, so it moves from the main idea here of unity to two comparisons, and this is the first one. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, pause there. 
For all my fellow millennials, this is like the original essential oils, okay? This was the sacred olive oil with certain spices infused into it. And it was reserved for use in the tabernacle and then later on the temple. And in Exodus 30, this is the oil that was used on Aaron, that's Moses' brother, the first high priest of Israel, to consecrate him. All right? And that's a picture of God's presence making Aaron holy, as in set apart for the work of ministering in the tabernacle. And so that's what this oil was, but what this symbol of God's presence did was take two things, Aaron and his robes, and unite them as one. All the way from his head to the collar or the, the edges of his robes. And so this is a very rich image, and it has a point. It's to say unity is like that. That's the first comparison. Second comparison, verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Here, we have another liquid. We have dew. And on the mountain as big as Mount Hermon, which is not, this is not Hermon from the monsters, okay? This is Mount Hermon. And it was very, it would be a very heavy dew in that case, and it caused all kinds of, of life and plants to grow. And in a very broad sense, which is why some of your Bibles translate this as a hypothetical situation, this dew would eventually make its way south uh, and water Israel's mountains. And so this is a picture of two places. 150 miles away, being connected, being united, because they are both drenched in this life-giving, land-refreshing moisture, this dew in that arid climate. And again, it's using this very rich image to say unity is like that. Unity is taking two separate objects or two separate places and bonding them together. And then the song ends with the reason for why this is so good. And it connects here back to verse 1. It ends with, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore, eternal life. Gang, this psalm is commending unity to us. And jaded or not, we need to listen to it. Because this psalm, it sings to us in the moment of frustration with others while longing for deeper unity. And it reminds us that real unity is as good as it looks. Real unity is as good as it looks. That's the first truth that we need to take hold of here. Real unity is really great. It's as good as it looks. See, in the verse 1 of this text, it used the word pleasant. This is a word that means attractive or beautiful. It's pleasant. And then it uses good. Good here is the same good that God used in Genesis to describe creation, where he spoke something into being. He created it, and then he steps back, and he looks at it, and he declares it to be good. Good as in the way he intended it to be. That's how beautiful and how right this experience of unity is. That's how good brotherly unity is. This song is speaking to the desire of our hearts for unity and is is incredibly basic to us for how and why we operate as a church in the people of God. And what this psalm is shouting is that real unity is really great. It doesn't just have a great facade. 
It's not like when you go to that restaurant and you see that thing that, that looks good and it smells good and it sounds good only to taste it and find out it is awful, right? Real unity is not like that. It's real, it's genuine, and it's lasting. And when you taste it, you'll recognize it, that this is what you've been longing for, that this is real belonging, it is not pretending. And it is why every other form of unity, good or bad, is only a shadow of this unity. And do you know why? Did, did you catch why in the text it's so good? Why, why is it the real McCoy? Why is it the way it was intended to be? Because it comes from the presence of God. Because it comes from the presence of God. See, real unity is as good as it looks. It's, it's good, it's beautiful, it's holy, it's life-giving, and it's eternal because it comes from God's presence. This is the second key truth I want us to pick up on because God's presence is key to real unity. After all, that's what this do, what the sacred oil was all pointing to. It's what makes the unity happen. It's what it's all about. It's what it's picturing, that unity came from an outside source and drenched and covered two things that were miles apart and completely unlike each other. But gang, that's what the presence of God does with you and me as a people of God. And maybe now, maybe more than ever, we need to be reminded of this and how basic this is. See, because as we break this down further, from this side of the cross, we look at the borders of the people of God expanding from the Jewish nation to include Gentiles, people like us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, saying this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, if you're a real Christian, then you're a part of the people of God, the family of God. That makes you part of the brotherhood in this text. And see, when we see that reality in this psalm, we see that it simply takes this psalm deeper and wider. That real unity is a spiritual bond bringing two things or more together, two or more individuals together because of the presence of God resulting in holiness and life. And that unity, it is on one hand a status and on the other hand, it's an experience. An experience. Unity has a status. Now think about this as a status. If you share a part in the real, genuine, and lasting people of God, it isn't based on what you do, or where you've been, or who you were beforehand. Think about this from the passage. The robe and the beard, the two separate mountains, they didn't create the unity between them. It was given to them. And listen, the status of unity as the 
people of God has been given to every member of this family. Regardless, if you're white American male or black African female or any other combination, the status of unity amongst the people of God is not something that you and I achieve. It is something that you and I are given. Every member of the family of God has been born again into this family, into this kingdom, into this race, this people, and it is not of their own doing. It is by the grace of God. Consider how God has set this up then, that we are a family, and what we have in unity is because we were all sinners under the same judgment. We were all called to look to the same Savior, to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and we were all offered, and we all receive the same salvation by God's grace, through faith alone, because of Jesus' work at the cross. See, church, if someone attests to that message You already have real, genuine, and lasting unity with them regardless of whatever else is present. And you will spend eternity with them. They may be a convicted criminal. They're in your forever family. They may be defined by everything you dislike in this world, but if they're washed, justified, redeemed, a member of this family, then you're going to be sitting on the same couch with them in glory. Better get used to it. Now certainly, more than a simple agreement on the basics of the gospel is needed to work together in a meaningful way. But without the foundation of the gospel, there is no lasting unity. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, nothing else can bring men together truly but this, this gospel. Friend, you may have many other places of unity in your life. You may have other places of similarity. But as you look at those, if they're not leading you into sin, they're fine. That's fine to have those. When God saved me, he didn't erase everything about me. He redeemed everything about me and called me to be conformed to the character of Christ. So you may have other places of unity or similarity. But this one, this family... It is first, it is foremost, and it is forever. And we are to treat it as such, as a status of the family of God. Now that's unity as a status. What about unity as an experience? If we share in the status of the family of God, it should give way to the experience of unity as the family of God. As we note in the text, though, there's a key word. When. When brothers dwell in unity. It's not just the status, but the experience of unity that matters. But this is where the rubber meets the road. But the experience of unity here is not always easy, is it? I thought Eugene Peterson said it well when he wrote this. The fact that we are a family of faith does not mean we are one big happy family. The people we encounter as brothers and sisters in faith are not always nice people. They do not stop being sinners the moment they begin believing in, in Christ. They don't suddenly metamorphose into brilliant conversationalists, exciting companions, and glowing inspirations. Some of them are cranky. Some of them are dull. Others, if truth must be spoken, a drag. But at the same time, our Lord tells us that we are brothers and sisters in faith. If God is my father, then this is my family. Church, can we say that? 
with the messy places of our background, the times of hurt? Can we say that of this messy group of people? That this is my family. And if God calls on me and you to love and forgive and bless who are those who are not yet our family, who are still under the status of lost sinner, enemy of the cross, then how much more are we called to love, to forgive, to bless, to care for, and yes, to enjoy those who are in this family? How much more? Because this is family, and we're to treat it as such. And at times when that happens, we get to experience, as a community, this little foretaste of heaven that this gospel community was meant to be. It makes us sing how good and pleasant that unity is when we see it. Have you experienced it lately? Have you experienced it lately? You know, a few months back, I was in the lobby after service, and by all respects, it had been a, a wonderful service, of meaningful worship, important teaching, and so forth. But on my mind was registering some recent news that my mother was likely going to pass away in a few short months. And one of the brothers here who, who I knew well that day just asked me that question of, how are you doing, John? And suddenly what was on the inside just gushed out on the outside. Don't you hate it when that happens? <laughs> but see, here was a brother who I knew loved Jesus and I knew loved me. And it was trustworthy. And it was right and it was good to tell him and to share in those tears with him because as a family of God, we're invited to mourn with one another and rejoice together. And he did exactly what a brother should do in that situation. He listened well and he prayed faithfully. And in that moment, it was just a little glimpse, a little glimpse, a little foretaste of heaven that a gospel community like this one gets to have here, and we get to have it there, and occasionally over there too. And I know, Alliance isn't perfect. We know that. And we know that, that, that the church doesn't just weep and celebrate with. It's also called to protect. It's also called to discipline. It's also called to serve one another and so forth. But listen, even at our best, with all of these things operating perfectly, we are only a glimpse of what's to come when someday we experience real community that is as good as it looks because we are fully, finally, and forever in the presence of God as the people of God. And in that moment, we move from being a taste of heaven to just heaven. By our experience now and our longing for that kind of unity, it should lead us to ask the final question, how do I cultivate real unity right here? How do I cultivate real unity? Well, in the text in front of us, we aren't told. We aren't told. Uh, verse 1 tells us how great this experience of unity is as a part of the spiritual family who share in that status. Verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 paint the mouth-watering picture of what unity is like as a result of God's presence. And then the passage finishes with telling us why this unity is so great, because it's forever. That this little experience of unity now is just the initial taste of God's blessing. And that's where it leaves us. And we don't want to read other things into the text that aren't here. The passage simply doesn't tell us how to cultivate the experience of unity as the people of God, but it does provide us with a clue, just a clue, that if our unity is because of God's presence, 
Perhaps the best way to cultivate it is to pursue the presence of God. That as we pursue him, we find all kinds of unity with others who are headed in the same direction. Think of this like an orchestra. Unity begins by looking at the conductor. He's the one who sets the tempo and tells you when to start, or or she's the one who sets the pitches out for you, right? They're the one. If you want unity, you look to the conductor. If you look to somebody else in the room, you will only have as much unity and be on beat as they are on beat following the conductor because he sets the tempo. In the body of Christ, Jesus is our conductor. He sets the tempo, and you and I achieve unity in the body, not by primarily trying to go out there and find unity, but by following the conductor. By following his lead, it's how we have unity in this family. We pursue the presence of God. And when you think about it, it just makes sense. In fact, we follow this clue and we look elsewhere in scriptures, we can find the same issue being shown to us in the life of Moses, in the life of Isaiah, in Philippians chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 4 and so on and so forth. And do you know what we find in those moments when people pursue God's presence? Humility. When you get in God's presence, it results in humility. We don't have time to unpack all that today. But unity and humility, they run together because they cease the comparison game. They cease the new privilege game. They cease all of that. Because when we look at Jesus, we find the one who deserved every privilege, every right, and yet gave everything up and humbled himself to serve and die for you and me. If that's your example, you have to conclude, it's not about me. When we are humbled by that gospel of what Jesus has done for us, we find unity. And so here's your application. Pursue the presence of God. As a Christian, his Holy Spirit dwells in you, so it won't be a very long commute, but just a humbling one. Now, humility will oftentimes take you far. Any context, Christian or not, any conflicts where you need to build unity, it will help. But in the church, this is especially crucial. So when, not if, but when you're struggling to have unity with a fellow Christian, you need to first examine yourself with the conductor, not the other. When you get in God's presence for an honest evaluation, following him first, looking to his lead and looking and examining your character in light of it, you will find humility. Far too many times we start out by looking to the other person and we get into the comparison game and that always leads us to pride rather than the humility from God's presence when we pursue him. So think about it like a triangle. With Christ at the apex and your relationship with a fellow believer, it will only grow closer as you both move towards the apex. The unity requires both to be moving in that direction, but your responsibility is to simply go yourself. That's where you start. It's heading in that direction yourself. That's the first step in cultivating unity with another Christian. It's moving into God's presence and humbling ourselves. We see that in little ways. We see that in big ways. There's an old story of Corey Timboom. She was a, uh, a part of a Christian family who hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. Her family was caught and they spent years in a concentration camp where her sister Betsy died. After the war was over, she had the opportunity to share about her experience, share about faith. And in one of those talks, 
She had a man in the audience, and after she was finished, he began to make his way down the front aisle, and as he was walking towards her, she recognized him as being one of the guards from the concentration camp. And when he got there, he identified himself as such, but said that since then he had become a Christian. And he uttered those words, asking for forgiveness. Corey said in that moment, she didn't know how she could forgive him. But then she remembered the words of Jesus. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Forgiving, she pointed out, is part of the call to be the family. So she chose to forgive. Friend, only this gospel can truly bring about the humility needed for real, genuine, and lasting unity amongst anyone in the family of God. And when you have it, and when you experience it, and when you see it, you can't help but saying how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Amen? Let's pray about that. Father, we recognize that we are far from heaven. We are far from being a people who have been perfected, who have been finally restored into the perfect image of your son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, we long for him. We long to be conformed into that image. And so, Lord, would you help us to end the comparison game of thinking about unity as everybody else's problem, as looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to somebody else when it comes to holiness. Instead, lead us back to the place where we look to your son, Jesus, and we find the gospel hope, and we find the unity present for us to be able to then move together as one body under your name, in the right direction as your people and as your family. Would you do that in our midst, Lord? Bring us closer together. And may we celebrate it when we see it. Amen.